Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Tuesday, February 27th, 2024. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. The CIA built 12 spy bases in Ukraine over the past decade. So the New York Times had a big report that came out on Sunday detailing the CIA support for Ukraine uh, over the years. And it said that the CIA helped build 12 secret spy bases in Ukraine along the Russian border as part of the agency's support for Ukrainian intelligence that started in 2014. So that's 10 years ago. And this report described one of the CIA-built spy bases as an underground bunker used by Ukrainian soldiers to track Russian spy satellites and eavesdrop on conversations between Russian commanders. So this report sheds new light on the CIA's involvement in Ukraine, which played a major role in provoking the Russian invasion. A European official told the paper that when Russian President Vladimir Putin was considering invading Ukraine toward the end of 2021, the head of one of Russia's main spy services told him that the CIA and the UK's MI6 were controlling Ukraine and turning it into a beachhead for operations against Moscow. The report said that the CIA's relationship with Ukrainian intelligence could be traced back to February 24th, 2014. That's just a day or two after former Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych was ousted in a U.S.-backed coup. On that day, the new head of the Security Service of Ukraine, that's the SBU, that was appointed by the post-coup government, got on the phone and asked the CIA for help in rebuilding Ukraine's intelligence capabilities. And the CIA agreed to help as it saw an opportunity to collect more intelligence on Russia. The U.S. spy agency helped form the 5th Directorate in the SBU, which is a new unit within the SBU. And it's interesting, uh, apparently it consisted of young Ukrainians who were born after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And the idea uh, was that the CIA was concerned that the SBU was uh, full of you know Ukrainians who were sympathetic to the Russians. Um, so they wanted younger guys, uh, you know, who didn't live under the Soviet Union. Um, so the Washington Post first reported on the CIA's creation of this fifth directorate back in October 2023. So it was a very similar report. This New York Times one has some new details about these spy bases, but both, you know, detail this CIA support for Ukraine's intelligence services that goes back 10 years ago. And the Washington Post report said that the CIA had spent tens of millions of dollars to transform Ukraine's post, uh, sorry, they spent tens of millions of dollars to transform Ukraine's Soviet-formed services into potent allies against Moscow. The CIA has also supported Ukraine's military intelligence agency, known as the GUR. And the GUR provided an opportunity for the U.S. because this report said it was allowed to collect intelligence outside of Ukraine, meaning that it could be used inside Russia. And a former U.S. intelligence official 
this is going back to the Washington Post report again. This official described the GUR as our little baby. Um, So the New York Times report said that the CIA started training Ukrainian spies who have operated inside Russia, across Europe, in Cuba, and in other places where Russians have a large presence. The CIA also helped create an elite commando unit known as Unit 2245, which collected Russian drones and other technology so that the U.S. could reverse engineer them. And one member of this commando unit was Kurilo Kurilo Budinov, who now heads the GUR. He is the head of Ukraine's military intelligence. And Ukrainian intelligence services began assassinating separatist leaders in the Donbass in 2016 and has been credited with several killings inside Russia. The most infamous one that's happened since Russia invaded Ukraine was the killing of Daria Dugina, the daughter of the Russian nationalist philosopher Alexander Dugin. She was killed in a car bombing outside Moscow. Um, it's assumed that that her dad was was the target, but she was killed and that was pulled off by the Ukrainian uh, intelligence services. Um, And, you know, in in these reports, you have U.S. officials insisting that the CIA is not directly involved in these assassinations, but the killings have not impacted the CIA's support. They're still giving them all this support. And the CIA's and, and just overall U.S. intelligence support for Ukraine has obviously increased since Russia launched the invasion in 2022. Most U.S. personnel were evacuated from Ukraine right before the invasion. So again, this is going back to 2022. But according to the New York Times, a group of CIA officers remained in a remote location in western Ukraine and provided intelligence support for the first weeks of fighting. And they quote a guy named Ivan Bakanov, who was the head of the SBU when Russia first invaded. He basically credited the CIA support for Uh, Ukraine being able to put up any kind of fight. He said, without the CIA, quote, there would have been no way for us to resist the Russians or to beat them, end quote. So, you know, you always hear about how the invasion was unprovoked, and then you see this stuff coming out. And then another story that came out in, in recent years, I think this was actually before Russia invaded, Yahoo News reported that starting in 2014 when the Donbass war broke out that the CIA deployed you know operators to ba- basically to the front lines of the war so we've known for a long time that the CIA has been deeply involved in Ukraine since that coup uh, in 2014 all right so the next one here Ukraine's military intelligence chief says that Navalny died of a blood clot so this is, again, Kirilo Budinov, who's the CIA's man and the head of the GUR, which is the Ukrainian intelligence, military intelligence agency. He said on Sunday that Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition figure, died of a blood clot. And so he said, quote, I may disappoint you, but as far as we know, he indeed died as a result of a blood clot. And this has been more or less confirmed. This wasn't sourced from the internet, but unfortunately, natural causes, end quote. So according to Navalny's uh, supporters and, and his, his people and stuff, uh, his death certificate issued by Russian authorities said that he died of natural causes. And Navalny died at 47 years old while serving a 19-year sentence and a penal colony in Siberia. 
And immediately after his death, President Biden blamed it on Putin, of course. So it's interesting to see here. Now you have uh, Ukrainian intelligence saying that it was a blood clot. Um, But Biden said this right after he died, pretty much. He said, quote, we don't know exactly what happened, but there is no doubt that the death of Navalny was the consequence of something that Putin and his thugs did, end quote. So in response to Navalny's death, so this past Friday, um, if you remember last week, I covered a story that Biden said he was going to unveil some major sanctions on Russia in response to Navalny's death, and they announced them on Friday. They said they targeted 500 Russia-related individuals and entities, some people inside Russia, some people accused of doing business with Russia. But, uh, you know, I don't think these are going to really have any impact. The U.S. has already put so many sanctions on Russia, you know, right after the invasion and Russia is, you know, weathering the sanctions and becoming more independent of the U.S.-led global financial system. And then I just had to mention in this report, um, that the U.S. has not responded to or spoken out about the death of Gonzalo Lira, who is an American who died uh, in a Ukrainian prison, and he was locked up for his political views and his his uh, his views on the war. All right, so the next one here, Slovakia says that some NATO members may send troops to Ukraine. Slovakia's Prime Minister Robert Fico warned on Monday that some NATO and EU countries are considering sending troops to Ukraine, a step that would risk direct war between NATO and Russia. So Fico said, quote, several NATO and EU member states are considering sending their soldiers to Ukraine on a bilateral basis, end quote. And remember, he's saying this as someone who is opposed to this, who is opposed to the proxy war. He was elected last year and he ran on a platform of cutting off aid to Ukraine. Um, So some NATO members have been signing their own like security deals, bilateral security deals with Ukraine. I know that Germany and the UK have done this already, but there's no indication that sending troops is a part of that. FICO said, quote, we see huge security risks in the bilateral agreements that are likely to be conducted soon with NATO and EU member states that want to send their troops to Ukraine, end quote. So he made the comments ahead of a meeting of EU leaders, uh, European leaders in Paris that was about the proxy war in Ukraine. And after the summit, uh, Macron, the French president, said that the idea of Western troops in Ukraine has not been ruled out. He said, quote, there's no consensus today to send in an official endorsed manner of troops on the ground. But in terms of dynamics, in terms of dynamics, nothing can be ruled out, end quote. So if you remember... Last year, the Discord leaks revealed that there are a small number of NATO special operations forces inside Ukraine. According to a leaked Pentagon document, there were 97 NATO special operations soldiers in Ukraine, including 14 Americans. And this was as of March 2023. Um, So, you know, we don't know if that's still the number, if there's more or if there's less, but uh, there definitely is at least some of these special operations forces on the ground there. And of course, Uh, the CIA uh, as well. All right, so the next one here, Israeli officials downplay the prospect of a hostage deal. 
So the Times of Israel reported on Monday that Israeli officials are downplaying the prospects of a new hostage deal with Hamas, even as Israeli negotiators head to Qatar to discuss the details. So according to media reports, the deal presented on Friday during talks between Qatar, Egypt, the U.S., and Israel would involve the release of 40 Israeli hostages in exchange for a six-week ceasefire and the release of hundreds of Palestinian prisoners. An Israeli official said that the deal still hasn't been presented to Hamas and is only being discussed with mediators. The official said, quote, we need to be careful. We're still talking to ourselves, end quote. So Hamas has been seeking a permanent ceasefire, and a second Israeli official told the Times of Israel that the main gap right now is the the end of the fighting and the IDF leaving the Gaza Strip, so saying that still Hamas seems to be seeking a uh, peace deal here that, you know, like a real peace deal, a, a, a permanent ceasefire, I should say. And Netanyahu has made clear that the Israeli slaughter in Gaza would continue after any truce and said that a hostage deal would only delay an Israeli invasion of Rafah which is the southern Gaza Strip city that's packed with 1.5 million Palestinians. So according to Haaretz, Netanyahu has also complicated the negotiations by adding a demand for the freed Palestinian prisoners to be deported to a third country, possibly Qatar or Turkey. And apparently he added this demand after Qatar, Egypt, and the U.S. presented this new outline uh, for a deal. So they're saying that that could complicate things and... Another thing that this this uh, Israeli official who spoke with Haaretz said might complicate things is Netanyahu's comments about the Rafah offensive. Because if you have Hamas saying that they want permanent ceasefire, uh, and then Netanyahu's out there saying, you know, things are going to restart just as, as heavy as they are now after any sort of ceasefire, um, this Israeli official is saying that that's, that's hurting the, the negotiating process. And then I also saw... Um, later in the day on Monday that Biden was asked about the hostage deal and he said that he hopes there's a deal by next Monday and that there's a ceasefire, but, you know, who knows? They got him on camera eating ice cream while he was saying that. (laughs) So, uh, you know, hopefully some progress is made here because I think a ceasefire, even if it's just a temporary one, would, would bring a lot of calm and then it would make it a lot harder for Netanyahu to, you know, restart everything. All right, so the next one here. So an update on the airman uh, who set himself on fire on Sunday, and he has died. And and this came out pretty shortly after this show was posted last night, I think. Uh, his name was Aaron Bushnell. He was only 25 years old, and he died, it looks like, late Sunday night. And so I watched the video on Monday morning. I saw an uncensored version of it. And it is really horrific to see. I mean, he was a young kid, 25 years old. And, you know, it's not for the faint of heart if you are, you know, if you want to watch it, I'm warning you that it's really horrific and really brutal. And even I saw the uncensored version, like there was one that was where he was blurred out. And uh, he, you could still hear him screaming. I mean, that was just as brutal almost as as the visual of it. but, I mean, this is a huge story. Uh, the fact that an active duty member of the U.S. Air Force set himself on fire over this uh, U.S. support for the for the, the slaughter of Palestinians that, that's going on. And, 
you know, uh, one thing I didn't know is that apparently back in December, uh, another protester set themselves on fire in front of the Israeli consulate in Atlanta. And that was kind of buried by the media. The identity of that person never came out. Uh, so I didn't even know that, but uh, someone showed that to me. And then, but this is a bigger deal. I mean, this this is a member of the U.S. military, and to the fact that he he was able to film it. Apparently, he he streamed it on Twitch, um, and he had you know. So people got a hold of the video again. You know, you could find it. it it's really brutal, um, but. Yeah, and and unfortunately, uh, he lost his life. And if if I saw the video, you know, before I recorded this show yesterday, I would have assumed he was dead again. It was just so uh, brutal and so quick how he he went up and and you know just was charred. Um, all right, so the next one here, uh, this is about what children are eating in Gaza. And it is not a nice story. This is from Reuters. And if you see the picture here, what they're showing is a newborn, Palestinian newborn, basically sucking on a date through gauze because there's no milk or formula available. The caption of this picture says that the, or the article says that this baby is two months old and her mo- mother has to feed her, or I'm not sure if it's a boy or a girl, but has to feed the baby a date. Um, and and I know I've seen other reports of this, of people giving solid foods to their newborn babies. And this is something I can't imagine, you know, as a father of, of young kids. And uh, there's other things here. And they, there's three brothers that they talk to who are in Gaza City. And they actually fled. They actually kind of ran away to central Gaza, uh, which is a little better. But while they were in Gaza City in the north, they were eating loaves of some kind of bread that was made. It was made with animal feed, like chicken feed, donkey feed, instead of flour. And that's what they were eating. And they, they, they things are a little better for them in central Gaza. Uh, but also, you know, so this story of this woman feeding her baby uh, a date through gauze this is in central Gaza. This isn't even in, in northern Gaza where it's the worst. There's no milk. And, you know, you have to assume that most, uh, for the women who are dehydrated, they it, it's got to be really hard for them to make milk. And then, of course, there's no formula or or even any just milk, regular, you know, dairy products. Um, so just a really uh, a, a glimpse of, of what it what it's like for the people and the families that are, that are dealing with this. And this is a two-month-old baby, so that means they were born during this thing so all right the next one here gaza city resident warns of mass starvation so this article is from middle east eye and it is an account from a palestinian who is living in gaza city and basically says if things continue like this for another week we're going to start starving in mass and this was published over the weekend by middle east eye and i just want to read kind of the last um part of it and this this palestinian again it's an unnamed palestinian i don't think there's a name here that's in gaza city who spoke with middle east eye who said um we've reached our limit things are miserable and get worse every day it's beyond famine i become so frail i was a healthy guy i used to ride horses and run now i can't even go up the stairs without feeling very exhausted I've completely forgotten what food tastes like. I no longer know what fruit or chicken tastes like. We had only rice, and even that is scarce now. If found, one kilo of rice costs 80 shekels, which is $22. 
when before the war it cost $1.90. We are running out of things like cooking oil, yeast, corn, and barley. Even animal feed that we are forced to eat at some point is running out. Every day something runs out. I know people who started to eat wild herbs. If we stay like this for another week, I think we will start seeing people die from starvation in mass. There's nothing left here. Healthy people are getting sick and sick people are dying. It doesn't matter whether you have money or not. It doesn't matter whether you stored food at the start of the war or not. Everything has run out. We're all the same. There's no way around it. To die from the bombs is better than to die from this hunger. At least with airstrikes, you die right away. But now we keep going round and round each day just to find a bite that keeps us standing. So just a really horrific account. And and this is what the U.S. government is supporting in Gaza, is enabling and facilitating with our tax dollars. All right, so the next one here, a civilian reported killed in the U.S. and British bombing of Yemen. So Yemen's Sabah news agency said that a civilian was killed in the series of missile strikes that the U.S. and Britain launched across launched across Houthi-controlled Yemen over the weekend, marking the first reported civilian death since the U.S. began bombing Yemen on January 12th. So Sabah reported, quote, the American-British aggression on the district of Makbana in the government of Taiz has left one civilian dead and eight wounded, end quote. So again, this is the first known report of a civilian being killed. And so far, the Houthis have just uh, confirmed that 17 of their fighters have been killed since the U.S. and the U.K. started bombing Yemen on January 12th. And so... This was the the strikes that the U.S. and the U.K. launched over the weekend. And the British and the Americans said that they they hit uh, 18 Houthi sites across Yemen. U.S. Central Command claimed that the strikes targeted weapons storage facilities, one-way attack drones, air defense systems, radars, and a helicopter. And this marks the fourth round of joint U.S.-British missile strikes on Yemen. The U.S. has also been conducting unilateral strikes, which have been launched on a near-daily basis over the last few weeks. And, of course, this bombing campaign has done nothing to deter the Houthis and only escalated the situation in the Red Sea in the Gulf of Aden. As I covered yesterday, U.S. officials just admitted to the CNN that they have no idea how much damage they're doing to the Houthis and that they... You know, some have even admitted that if is if there's a ceasefire in Gaza, the Houthis would probably be true to their word and stop the attacks on commercial shipping. But they're going to continue and potentially escalate into targeted killings of Houthi leadership. All right, so the next one here. Two killed as Israel attacks Lebanon's Baalbek area for the first time. So this article is from Jason Ditz. And it says, for the first time since the beginning of the Gaza war in October, Israel fired against targets in the Beka Valley near the eastern city of Baal Bek in Lebanon. At least two people were killed, reportedly Hezbollah members, and several others were wounded. Israeli comments on the matter suggest that they targeted trucks in the attack, while Hezbollah said the strikes hit a pair of buildings one of them a warehouse belonging to a Hezbollah organization, and the other an empty three-story building. The attack came following Hezbollah shooting down an Israeli drone over southern Lebanon earlier in the day. One of the missiles fired at the drone that was fired at the drone was reportedly intercepted, though Hezbollah ultimately brought down the UAV. 
Um, according to Lebanese officials, the wounded in the Baalbek attack included not just Hezbollah affiliates, but civilians and members of the Lebanese military. Two of the casualties included a soldier and his four-year-old child. Um, so the Baalbek attack sparked a flurry of attacks between Israel and Hezbollah, with Hezbollah firing some 60 miles, sorry, 60 missiles across the border, which reportedly targeted a base in the occupied Golan Heights. So the tensions continue on this border here and things just continue to uh, escalate, it seems like. All right, so the last story here in the news section, Hungary's parliament ratifies Sweden's NATO membership. So Sweden cleared its last hurdle to join NATO on Monday as Hungary's parliament ratified its membership. Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson, you know, celebrated this, uh, the approval here. And, and now Sweden is going to formally join NATO once it submits its instrument of accession with the U.S. government. But this was the last thing that they needed. Hungary was the last holdout. Turkey held out for a long time and approved Sweden's NATO bid last month. So now Hungary has followed them and Hungary delayed its vote on Sweden's NATO bid over Stockholm's criticism of the Hungarian government of Viktor Orban. Um, And this is something, you know, a lot of EU countries criticize Hungary. Uh, Orban met with Christensen this past Friday and that they they agreed uh, that they would that they've rebuilt trust and. Um, Orban also acknowledged that being members of NATO means that we are prepared to die for each other. Um, so they uh, worked it out or whatever, and Hungary approved it. And now Sweden joining NATO brings the total number of members of the alliance to 32, and that is twice double uh, how many countries were in NATO when the Soviet Union collapsed. So they've doubled in size since the end of the Cold War. And now Sweden, uh, the U.S. and Sweden, they've already signed a new defense cooperation agreement that will grant the U.S. access to Swedish military bases. So that's it for the news for today. Please go check out our viewpoint, one from Ron Paul. After two years, neocons are desperate for more war in Ukraine. One from Michael Clare, emergent AI behavior and human destiny. One from Christian Britsky, the U.S. should not give Israel or Ukraine any more money. One from William von Wagenen, what really happened on October 7th. And one from Caitlin Johnstone, Aaron Bushnell burned himself alive to make you turn your eyes to Gaza. And our picture story is is about uh, Aaron, the, the 25-year-old who uh, burned himself alive. Uh, so go... Uh, Go check all that out. Uh, you could always support us by sharing this show. Tell your friends about antiwar.com. Like, subscribe, and comment, and all that stuff. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow with some more news. Thanks for listening. <laughs>